As I said, we've returned to Psalm 96 in our season of thanksgiving. We have looked previously at the first three verses, and today we look at verses 4, 5, and 6. <clears throat> there are times and places that we are told what to do and why we should not do it. Anybody who's had any military experience knows that very well, told to do something. You can't ask why, just do it. Last time, <clears throat> in our look at Psalm 96, the first three verses were a form of a conclusion. And the conclusion called on us to do something. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Something to marvel at. In the way that we have been created, God has given us the gift of music and of singing and how these gifts are strongly used to express deep emotions, to convey stories. Now, this is what we see in the Psalms. And as we see, they are used to, <clears throat> to highlight great truths. James writes, is any among you suffering? <clears throat> Let him pray. Is any among you cheerful? Let him sing psalms. <clears throat> and anyone who is moved by the greatness of God, here in Psalm 96, is encouraged to sing. In fact, before we get through two verses, we are told three times to sing. Sing a new song. New mercies require new songs. And for all the redeemed, there is a movement from songs of the flesh to the songs of the Spirit. Now, I will admit, I grew up listening to songs in the 60s and 70s. And now when I have an opportunity to listen to them again on Sirius XM or something like that, I'm amazed at how shallow they are. The Archies, oh honey, sugar, sugar, you are my candy girl and you got me wanting. This, you, you know that came right out of the, the Mensis group there, that the, the great minds of all time came together to put together words such as that. And when you listen to that, and then when you hear the beauty of the Psalms being sung, what a great transformation. What a great thing to be able to sing the truth. You know, a lot of times when we sing along with songs on the radio or uh, with your MP3 or whatever, you're singing along, but you're not, that's not your life. You haven't lived that. You haven't experienced that, but you're singing along with it anyway. But here, when we sing the Psalms as believers, we're singing those things which truly are about us and of us, and, and we experience 
of God, through God, and, and with God. The Psalms were, this Psalm particularly was written on the occurrence, if you will, of the return of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark represented the presence of God with his people. In fact, you can look at the Noah's Ark, which is a wholly different thing, but it prefigured Christ, and so did the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God with his people. As we said last, week, last time, the, the top of the Ark was the mercy seat. And here it points to the coming of Christ, not only in his first advent, but also in the second coming. For though in his first coming he did not come in judgment, judgment did come when he came because there were those who believed and those who would not believe. But there's also the calling of the nations. We noted that the law of Moses didn't bring forth any songs, but the grace of God makes the heart to sing. Nothing gives birth to song as does the grace of God. And as we are hopefully not full, not full on moved away from the thoughts of thanksgiving, great songs of thanksgiving should still come from all the redeemed. Blessing, praising, giving glory to the God does nothing for him but sure brings great benefits to us. And an eternal salvation requires and commands eternal praise. But think how thankful we should be for the light of truth and grace that brought everyone who was <clears throat> spiritually blind to see the truth. And so we're commanded here to sing and proclaim the good news of his salvation day to day. If you watch and you see the different protests that are going on throughout our country even, how sad it is to see these people who are, for the most part, being influenced by Islam to protest the way that they are. And it's really sad to see uh, so much distraught faces and so much anger on the faces of people as they march up and down. But we who have had the light of Christ come into our lives and to change us, we should be, as it says here, proclaiming the good news of his salvation day to day. Rejoice. Rejoice. But you're not a child of Ishmael, but a child of Abraham. Now, as I mentioned in the first three verses, they tell us what to do. And the next three verses will tell us why. Verses 4 and 5 should be taken together, not, not split apart. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. The Lord is great 
greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You see, only one God is, is worthy of universal praise. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul makes this statement that we, we see connects very nicely with what's being said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. We need to define, then, what is meant here by gods. We note the language contrast. Notice every mention of the Lord. If you have a New King James or King James, you'll notice, and probably in, in the ESV if you have that as well, that every mention of the Lord here is in capitals pointing to Yahweh, the great name of God. And he is to be feared above all what? Gods, lowercase g. All the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens. So even as we read it, there's, in these words we see a great difference just visually in the titles. The Lord, Yahweh, versus Elohim. Yahweh meaning the self-existent or eternal one. And Elohim, a generic often term for God or for rulers or for judges and even angels. So gods in this particular place and in this time here mean angels or idols. Anything other than the true God that is counted as deity. It means the gods of the people's imagination or making. Idols are the things that have no existence apart from the imagination that gave it. And we also mention angels because that was a thing that continued into the New Testament as well. The worship of angels uh, included into this mix. And those who try to worship God in some other form actually greatly dishonor him. They do a greater dishonor to him. Uh, he will not give his glory to another. And so those who say they are worshiping some kind of God are actually insulting the true God. Those people who will say, well, you know, all steeples reach to heaven and, and all religions have the same goal. No, they don't. There are religions that will send you to hell. There's only one that will bring you into eternal glory with the Father. And so those who say, well, yeah, but, you know, I worship the God I want, you worship the God you want, 
people who say statements like that are making statements of idolatry. If we turn to Psalm 115. Is there such a thing as good sarcasm? There can be mean sarcasm for sure. But there's a light, good kind of sarcasm that uh, is useful in Psalm 115 and verse 3. But our God is in heaven. And he does whatever he pleases. He has perfect freedom. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Ears or eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses have they, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk nor do they utter through their throat. And those who make them are like them. And so is everyone who trusts in them. They're dead spiritually as the idol they made. It gets even more uh, down to uh, this level when we go to Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44 in verse Verse 9, well, let's start at verse 8, Isaiah 44 and verse 8, do not fear nor be afraid, have I not told you from that time and declared it, you are my witnesses, is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock, I know not one. Those who make an image, all of them are useless. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a, a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, well, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks out one with the chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it, remain, it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rains nourish it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it to warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread, and indeed he makes a god and worships it. Talk about multi-purpose. You make a god, you can heat yourself and 
and bake your bread. And he makes a, a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. And with this half, he eats meat. He roasts a, a roast and is satisfied. And he even warms himself and says, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. <laughs> they do not know or understand, for he has shut his eyes so that he cannot see, and his heart so they cannot understand. No one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver his soul nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? All the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord, the Lord has made the heavens. What significance is this? That last statement is very significant in there. The gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The significance is that all man counts as gods. Everything he can think would make and, and think to be God are formed out of what God, the God, has created. Created by the one true God. People worship planets, worship or follow horoscopes. They say, well, I don't worship the horoscope. Well, in a way you do because you believe that the movement of the planet and the stars has something to do with shaping your destiny. That's idolatry. That's saying that this object can change your life, can affect your life to some sort of change. And so you have time, even at the time of the psalmist, people were worshiping Jupiter. And then later they would worship Mars. And this is what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. Romans 1 verse 21, because though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. The human heart, as Calvin said, is an idol-making factory. It's always coming up with things that it puts its greatest affection upon. And those who worshipped angels would cause the angels grief because people would be giving them something that belongs only to God. And since we're coming into this season, I'm going to take a very deep dive theologically here. And it is my, my hope that you can stay with me through this. 
because we're going to go really, really deep. Are you ready? Let's look at Frosty the Snowman. I'm not suggesting that he was made an idol. But what I am suggesting is a perfect illustration of what's being said in Psalm 115 and Isaiah 44. Are you with me so far? I haven't gotten too deep yet, have I? The illustration is really quite good here because he's made of snow. Well, where does the snow come from? God causes the rain and the snow and all that. He has two eyes of what? Coal. Coal, part of creation. He has what for a nose? A button. Someone doesn't know the song very well, do they? It doesn't go a corn cob pipe and a carrot nose. All these things are part of creation. And Frosty has no life in himself. The, the children roll him and fashion him into some kind of form. He has no life in that form. But when a magic hat is put upon his head, he comes to life. So he needs something outside of himself to give him life. The magic hat which here is man's imagination. Same thing with an idol. The idol has no life in itself except what the imagination of man gives to it. Now, what is it that defeats Frosty? 33 degrees Fahrenheit, one degree Celsius. You see, every idol needs man's imagination to make it live, to give it life. And since it is made from something in creation, something created can destroy it. If it's made of wood, it can be destroyed by fire. If it's made of metal, it can be destroyed with a sledgehammer or truth. And so Jeremiah 23 in verse 29, he says, God says, it's not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. But our Lord made the heavens. Our Lord made the heavens. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. He is of greater glory than any idol maker could ever imagine. That's part of the other thing. People who fall into forms of idolatry, and I'm not saying that there are people out there today. There may be some that do this sort of thing. But everyone who is not in Christ has an idol. And sometimes people who are in Christ come very close to idolatry. Because everyone who is not in Christ is putting their trust and their faith in something else, something of their imagination, something that they have created a hope they've created within themselves. But our Lord 
made the heavens. The greater majority of the world does not worship the true God. They do not know Christ as their Savior. As, as one of the uh, Puritans put it, man is vanity and all that comes from him is to be mistrusted. The fact that the majority of the world believes in something else besides the Lord Jesus Christ should teach us to be wary of what multitudes do and following what the multitudes do. But the Lord made the heavens. The reality of God is over us every day. It's around us every moment. It's under our feet, and it's in our very being. How does my heart beat? Because God made it to beat and to, to move the blood through my system. Why do all, how do all the organs work? It's because God has so designed them to work. Every time we take a breath and our lungs expand and take in the air, it's the design and work of God that brings that to pass. You can't say to a block of wood, give me breath. God is the author of everything that has existence. There are none that can rival him. In Hebrew, it reads really quite interesting when you look at uh, the comparison uh, that is made For all the gods of the people are idols. And when it refers to Hebrew, it reads, all the Elohim are Elohim. They are nothing. All the gods they make are nothing. So then verse 6 says, honor and majesty, strength and beauty, Honor and majesty. See, man can only mimic these things. I admit to being a bit of an Anglophile. And when Queen Elizabeth died, and unfortunately, the next one was her son, Charles, to take the throne. King Charles Coronation. If you took all regular stuff, you just put King Charles in shorts and a t-shirt. Outside of being extremely white, because that probably doesn't get in the sun much, he would look like any other man. So what do they have to do when it comes to the coronation? It's very ornate, and you've got the crown, and you've got all the robes, and you've got the scepter, and all these things have to be placed on him. Why? Because in and of himself, he has nothing that's regal. What is regal has to be placed upon him because in and of himself, he lacks all these things that are necessary. But God, God himself is honor and beauty. 
Honor means high respect and esteem, and that's something that we need to reinforce to this coming generation because it doesn't seem like they want to give honor to anybody, especially anybody older than they are. I'm not saying that's true of everyone. But you see that in this move across our culture for egalitarianism, not equality, but egalitarianism, there should be nobody in their minds that has any kind of rank. Majesty means sovereign power and dignity and grandeur. Something that causes admiration. We sing about that in uh, America the Beautiful. Oh, beautiful for, and we go to, for purple mountains, majesty. Psalm 93, verse 1 tells us the Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Psalm 104, and verse 1 tells us, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. But if you want to, since I found out last week, we can preach for an hour and a half. <laughs> no, I'm getting close to the end. Honestly. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, I'm going to start reading at verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Honor and majesty were before him. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, the throne of majesty in the heavens, having honor and majesty laid upon him, arrayed in robes of majesty, crowned with glory and honor, having a scepter of righteousness in his hand. If we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 8, this Jesus, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. This Jesus, again, causes us to have and rejoice with joy inexpressible. We can never run out. And notice the last part of verse 6, <clears throat> uh, Psalm 96. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. 
in his sanctuary. He's seen by those who seek him. The beauty and the honor and the glory of God are seen by those who diligently seek him. And if we think about the context of the psalm, remember, the Philistines had the ark of God. They captured it in battle. And what did they do? They put it in their temple. And what did they, where did they put it in their temple? Right next to the carving, <coughs> excuse me, of their, their god Dagon. And the Philistines went into the temple the next day, and Dagon had fallen down on his face. And they set him back up on his feet. Uh, hello? Did you know what you just did? You had to pick your God up off of the ground and you had to set him back up. Everything's fine. Next day, come into the temple. Dagon's fallen on his face and this time his arms are broken. And that's really symbolic because arms were significant of strength. So now, not only do they have to stand them up, but they've got to do some repair work. <laughs> you see, the, the Philistines saw the power of God, but they didn't see the beauty of God. <clears throat> Psalm tells us to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Not in the fear of holiness, but in the love of it. This is a part of a poem that I saw from something that was written in 1730. But it goes like this. Oh, if so much of beauty reveal itself in every vein and life and nature, how beautiful must be the source itself, the ever bright one. And so as we conclude this season... Thanksgiving, can we not be really thankful for the beauty of our God, the truth of our God, and that he is truly our God only through Christ? Let's stand together for prayer.